Why are there so many stories of the hero or of heroes in mythology? Well, because that's what's worth writing about. I mean, even in in uh, popular novel writing, you see these the main character is a hero or a heroine. That is to say, someone who has found or achieved or done something beyond the normal range of uh, achievement and experience. A hero properly is someone who has given his life to something bigger than himself or other than himself. Joseph Campbell spent his entire life studying mythology, studying culture, studying religion, came to some form of stardom, I guess, in the mainstream because George Lucas, who created Star Wars, who was actually a cultural anthropologist before he became a movie maker and studied under Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell made this book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He effectively reduced all the world's mythologies and found cohesive uh, structure, which all of these stories share. The monomyth, he called it, right? The monomyth. Whether you go to Papua New Guinea or you go to visit the Inuits, or whether you go to Europe, you'll find that all of those mythologies and, and fairy tales are just actually following a certain blueprint somehow. A circular journey where you start in a certain position, you descend into a special world, and then you come back, and that's the shorthand. To show how it applies, we're going to use two examples from mainstream lore. Star Wars from the 70s, and then The Matrix from 1999. And it's fascinating to see these stories through this lens because you realize this idea of the hidden architecture. You have to let it all go, Neo. Let go your conscious self. Fear. Doubt and disbelief. And act on instinct. Yeah, if anything, it's two trilogies that are wildly successful. Looking under the proverbial hood helps us understand why. Or does it make it them less interesting? It's not like you see the hidden architecture and they're not good anymore. In fact, they can only be good if this hidden architecture exists, even though it's most often invisible to us. Let's start with the basic building blocks. So we have a horizontal and a vertical axis in a circle. On the vertical axis, we've got two components. We have the ordinary world, we have the extraordinary world. There's the ordinary. This is the world that you know. The understanding of the world that is provided to you by authority, your parents, school. Yeah, culture. Culture. When you're in the ordinary world, you're effectively governed by the rules of the world. In the extraordinary world, Pioneering, trailblazing. You move beyond the bounds of culture. You're in the unknown and you're trying to establish uh, new territory, as it were. Here you will live a life of danger, creativity, perhaps not a respected life, Freeze! but certainly an interesting one. You are in a realm for which there are no rules. You follow the way of your own bliss.
through the process of going into the unknown world. The guardrails of authority are not provided to you. You have to go through a, a disintegration where your ego structure that was provided by the superego of the culture. That old ego has to become adaptable to the chaos. And in the act of going to the bottom of that circle, you then reconstitute yourself into a new self where you have a higher understanding of yourself, your relationship to the world, and the nature of the world itself. You are responsible for building the world. The world isn't responsible for keeping you as you are. In its simplest terms is that when you're in the ordinary world, you are curated by the culture. When you're in the extraordinary world, the culture is being created by the individual. We're now going to break it down into 12 steps, so higher resolution. And we're going to use Christopher Vogler, a story consultant who studied Joseph Campbell in the 80s, tried to bring the knowledge of Joseph Campbell to Hollywood. But in order to make it digestible to an audience that didn't want to study anthropology, he, he made a book called The Writer's Journey, which is a, an exceptionally well-distilled summary of Joseph Campbell's work. Step one is the ordinary world, and this is effectively establishing the protagonist who will become the hero in a world of safety, in a world that's provided to them, by an authority figure. In this case, it's the, the auntie and uncle of Luke Skywalker. And it's this idea of if we're gonna show a fish out of water, you gotta first show them in their normal environment. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Now, come on, get to it. All right, come on. This is an essential feature of a story because all story is comparative. You need to establish a pattern in order to break a pattern in order to rebuild it thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So stories in general, we always have this kind of introduction where it relates to what the audience feels, which is what's my current ordinary set of patterns? What are my routines? How do I relate to authority? How do I relate to my family? How do I relate to the community, to an employer? You have a problem with authority, Mr. Anderson. You believe that you are special, that somehow the rules do not apply to you. Obviously, you are mistaken. The ordinary world is effectively about saying, this is the ritual of daily life for this unreflective ego, mm -hmm. which is an ego pattern that's just... Going through the motions. Going through the motions. It just isn't fair. Oh, Biggs is right. I'm never going to get out of here. When we go through the motions without any awareness, life becomes stale. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes stale, we all start to feel a sense that something's not quite right, but we can't articulate it yet. Right. We just know that we're down somehow. Yes, yeah, it's too predictable. And again, we are designed to deal with unpredictability. So if you get too much order, you start to crave chaos. The time has come to make a choice, Mr. Anderson. Either you choose to be at your desk on time from this day forth, or you choose to find yourself another job. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Mr. Reinhardt, perfectly. So we're seeing these patterns of it's safe, it's familiar, it's relatable, uh, and it's also about 
stasis. Mm. It's about establishing that something's not quite right, which everyone can relate to if they're honest with themselves. If your life's not quite right, you might not know how to fix it, but at least you can acknowledge that it's become dull. We, until we're pretty well along 12, 13, 14, are utterly dependent on our parents and on our society. So a psychology of dependency is developed. A psychology of submission, asking for approval, uh, expecting reproof, and all this sort of thing. But how are we going to break out of that psychological bondage into self-responsible authority, courage for what our thoughts are on our life? Um, this is the problem of killing the infantile ego, which is one of dependency and coming into the mature ego of authority. Also adventure is when, in mythology, it's called the herald. So the herald is not a, not a character, it's an event or an object or a coincidence. The herald is the symbol of the, the hornblower, the messenger that somehow announces to the protagonist there's other ways to approach life that isn't this routine. It's something that serendipitously comes into the story that is an opportunity to challenge the ego of the protagonist and to challenge the ritual and to challenge the superego. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. What's this? So in Star Wars, these two robots show up. He's asked to refurbish them, and then he finds this secret message from this princess that needs help. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And this is the mystery that Luke's now confronted with is, oh, this is interesting. Oftentimes, after the course of adventure, the hero goes in search of, of a mentor. With archetypes, the mentor, for example, we think of a person, and in the case of Star Wars, it's a, it's a wise elder. But a mentor can, can be anything inside of the story world that provides information about what the call to adventure means. It's, it's this idea of someone with higher wisdom that, who is gonna imbue you with something. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. The mentor doesn't have to be the old sage. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be a computer program. It can right. be a book. It yes. can be anything through which wisdom or virtue is, is attained yeah. that gives a counter uh, point to the hero's kind of judgment on a situation. Right. Star Wars, it's Obi-Wan. In Lord of the Rings, it'd be Gandalf. And in The Matrix, it's Morpheus. This is the, the moment where you're confronted with some insight and also a raising of the stakes of the challenge. Because then when you have a mentor, there's also that sense of, oh, I don't want to let the mentor down. Yes, accountability. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Alderaan? I'm not going to Alderaan. I've got to get home. It's late. I'm in for it as it is. I need your help, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. You can't be courageous unless you're afraid. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the ability to overcome it. A virtuous response to fear. You know, that you're going to choose to face it and move towards it rather than away from it. So it's not an absence, it's a response. It's the responsibility towards fear. 
case of the Matrix, it's a classic motif of being at great heights. I can't do this. So there's always consequence to the inaction, which is the same in life, you know, like you've got to confront it. Yeah, even inaction is an action. To decide not to act is to take an action. In the case of Luke, do I stay at home and serve my parents or my mm -hmm. auntie and uncle? Mm -hmm. Or do I go off my own adventure? And I think that that's a critical idea here, which is the idea that you've got to leave home at some point. Mm -hmm. You can't consistently right. stay under the guardianship of authority. You have to become your own authority. As part of the path of growth or maturation, right? you are ultimately going to be in charge of yourself. Now, obviously, when you come into this world, all of your authority is advocated to your parents or your caretakers. But over time, they're, they're relinquishing that authority over you to the point where you can fly the nest, right? And be a self-responsible, self-authoring adult, perhaps having children of your own. And so it's, it, it is this natural course. returns to the farm, reality is basically saying you can't ignore the problem that's being put forth. You've got to confront it. If we don't take on a challenge when it's offered to us, that challenge will keep on pressing until it demands to be uh, dealt with. Once the, the refusal of the call has taken place, there's the crossing the threshold. And this is on our diagram, it's that vertical threshold of, we go from the ordinary world, the, the place of the familiar, through to the special world or the extraordinary world. It's the moment when you really sense change. The first experience as we cross the threshold is the moment when we imprint in the audience the differences between the ordinary world of the ego and the extraordinary world of the unconscious. When you leave the mapped out path of the, uh, what I call the village compound, where everyone knows what's right and what's wrong, and you start off on the quest journey, you are accepting the, the, the negative. Because you've left the confines of the bubble of order the fiction of order into the jungle, into the woods. In a sense, it's more true in that it's more comprehensive, right? It's a more comprehensive uh, layout of the world that's previously unexplored, right? It's unexplored territory. A parallel in the symbology between the Matrix and Star Wars. When they're ejected from the fiction of order, the semblance of order, which is, like you say, a bubble, and they're dropped into reality, their realities are both very messy, it's very organic, and that's, that's the true reality from which we've emerged. That is the world, right? The world is as a messy place. <laughs> like, we tend to think of ourselves as clean, socialized creatures living in civilization, and we, we actively repress in all of our kind of rituals and social conduct we try to hide those dirty things. That's why we have bathrooms where we yes. don't shit in front of each other. That's we don't show clothing. our genitals. We have clothing. Yeah. Politeness. Politeness. Norms. Yeah. It's all effectively an act of denying the very biological grounding that we come from because yes. the biological stuff is disgusting. Yeah. We shit, we burp, 
We, yeah. we ejaculate, yeah. we piss, yeah. we sweat. All of those things are like biologically grotesque to us, to, yes. to the civilized mind. When you're dropped into the real world, it comes with it, the, the idea of filth, because it's mm -hmm. like the, you're back in the law of the jungle almost, right. as opposed to the clean office space. And we're surrounded by people conducting the vices. It's gambling, it's smoking, it's drinking. And one of the patrons of this establishment is the devil. It's all the things that we hide from children. We don't show children that world. And it's the idea of now you're in the shadow realm. The old ego is kind of like the facade you use to fit into the existing culture, right? Like you came up and developed in these conditions where this instrument served you well, like it fits you into the culture allows you to have uh, discourse and intercourse with other people, like to flow easily. But once you exit that culture. He doesn't like you. I'm sorry. That same facade causes you misfitness. I don't like you either. You just watch yourself. That's, it's the breaking down of that in the extraordinary world that, that involves, you know, the descent and the fall into the abyss and the reintegration and, you know, hopefully <laughs> ascent back into the ordinary world with, with new learnings and new lessons. This is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing, equipment, weapons, training simulations, anything we need. Tests, allies, and enemies it effectively means developing the ability to wield a whole range of tools in any circumstance that makes you adaptable. It's a series of experiences that allow the hero to understand and respect the boundaries of their own capabilities. If they're too humble, they learn to become more confident. If they're too confident, they get humbled. Good. Adaptation, improvisation. But your weakness is not your technique. And it's through this dynamic, a metaphysical dynamic of being exposed to so many different ways of seeing the world that you internalize them into your own, your own consciousness. You have to let it all go, Neo. Let go your conscious self. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. And act on instinct. Do you need to think through this problem? Do you need to feel through it? Do you need to act? Whoa. The only way that you can truly understand the nature of your ego is to step outside of it. Hello, Neo. You're right on time. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can step outside of the, the lit space of the ego mm -hmm. is to move into the shadows and look yes. back at the ego reflectively. Yes. And you, cannot, you have to stand, you have to be outside of yourself in order to see yourself. Yes. And that's what the shadow realm or the extraordinary world is, is an opportunity to reveal aspects of yes. your own being that before this time have been concealed by yes. the system you're in. You know what that means? It's Latin. It means no. Myself. Yes, yes. And it also, I would say, it foregrounds the importance of your allies and your friends, mm -hmm. right? Because they 
they are nodes of feedback, right? They see parts of yourself that you cannot see in yourself. Yeah. So not only is the adventure itself calling forth these latent qualities in you, mm. it's also forcing you to identify your own flaws, but you're also there with friends, right? Or, or party members that are also reflecting back into you as you reflect back into them. Mm. So it's this, um, yeah, very deeply iterative process of both self-reflection and reflection between peers. In the process of becoming a complete integrated human being, we all are heroically facing internal guardians, monsters, and helpers. In our internal quest to explore our own minds, we find teachers, guides, demons, gods, mates, servants, scapegoats, masters, seducers, betrayers, and allies as aspects of our personalities and characters in our dreams. Approaching the inner cave in the context of Jung, the Death Star is effectively a, a metaphor for the inner sanctum of your ego. You're going into the, to the, the inner core of how your ego is organized and you're gonna confront what codifies that ego. The authority, in this case, the Death Star is run by the Empire. It's the idea of the, the parental authority that has coded you. But inside of that, a uh, heavily fortressed area is the possibility of new ways of seeing the world, which is why they're going into that to retrieve the anima, effectively, to retrieve the feminine principle. The anima is the readiness in the masculine psyche to respond to a female presence. Into the garden, boy. It's the ideal of woman that is in the psyche. If your ego is in the ordinary world, and you descend into the extraordinary world, what Joseph Campbell calls the belly of the whale, some part of you needs to be, to be broken off and wither. You have a death and rebirth in order to, to get rid of aspects of yourself that don't make any sense. Yeah, the old self dies and the new self is born. What's the mythological significance of the belly? It's the descent into the dark. Jonah in the whale. I mean, that's, that's a standard motif of going into the whale's belly and coming out again. You cannot find yourself unless you, are first, unless you first lose yourself, right? So you have to permeate that threshold. You have to go outside of the bubble and pioneer the unknown, right? And become informed by that. The more experience and hardship you face, the more you grow. Growth involves letting parts of yourself die. I think the more you realize, as Socrates says, right, the only thing I know is I know nothing at all. You move closer to that. Like this, this, you get humbled by the world, frankly. So it's informing you, right? It's, you're being informed by the entropy of the world that the little, you know, pristine worldview you thought you had when you were in your early 20s or whatever it was sort of really shrinks down to an, an infinitesimal point. No! All life is sorrowful, is the first Buddhist saying, and it is. It's a wonderful, wonderful opera, uh, except that it hurts. 
The, the hero is the one who can, can participate in it decently, in the way of nature, not in the way of personal rancor, revenge, or anything of the kind. The ordeal, it's the reward. It's the, the, the either spiritual, physical, mental gain that comes from having yourself, as Jordan, Joseph Campbell describes it, being eaten up by the dragon. You, you're, you're broken into fragments and then you have to put yourself back together again. Going back to the ordinary world requires one last act to instantiate the gains that have been found right. in the extraordinary world, like to ordain them, as it were. The integration. case of Star Wars, it's this road back to the rebellion factions in order to regroup. And then in The Matrix, it's his road back, trying to get back to a telephone that will get him back to the mm -hmm. ordinary world, to the Nebuchadnezzar. And with both cases, you get a resurrection. Is the machine, and the state is the machine. Is the machine going to crush humanity or serve humanity? And humanity comes not from the machine, but from the heart. Nirvana is a psychological state of mind. It's not a place like heaven. He is the one. It's not something that's not here. It is here in the middle of the turmoil, what's called samsara, the whirlpool of life conditions. Nirvana is the condition that comes when you are not compelled by desire, by fear, or by social commitments. When you hold your center, use the force, Luke, and act out of there. Nirvana being this inner stillness, right? It's, it's like the zero point around which everything else, maelstrom of reality, spins and changes. 
Grabbing it as a psychological place where you're just centered in yourself, right? In all of your, your energy centers, your, you have an inner stillness. And that is the space from which you most adequately respond to the world, right? This is Viktor Frankl that between every circumstance and response, there is a space, right? We have that freedom to choose how we respond. And that's like, I think he calls it the final human freedom. I think your quote in Man's Search for Meaning is uh, that we should not ask what we can expect from life, but rather what life expects from us. And right. This is a Copernican switch. That life is asking questions to us. Each situation confronting us implies a question. But this question can only be answered uh, by our deeds, by action, by doing something. If the situation uh, necessitates uh, to just to shoulder it, because we cannot do anything about it, in such a case, what we can change is ourselves. Changing in the sense of rising above the situation, growing beyond ourselves. By the end of the story, you're the master of two worlds. You are able to understand and articulate and navigate the ordinary world that everyone else lives in. But you've also experienced an, a uniquely individual world of understanding that that is a fiction that you have to live within, but it's not the whole world. This renews and revivifies everyone's world. The knowledge, the wisdom, the either a physical tool or a, or a mental tool. It's something that brings prosperity. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. To get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition, finding the source of life to bring you forth in a uh, richer or more mature or other condition. The hero's journey is a metaphorical mapping of the mind, the psyche, in development. All of these things are theatrical dramatizations of the inner world, of our, our feelings and our minds. It seems impossible to understand how, with only eight notes in an octave, we don't simply run out of music. But just as tones give rise to semitones, time signatures, tempo and style alter content, so we start to see that a very simple pattern contains within it the possibility of endless permutations. Feed in a different kind of floor, reward or punish the characters in a variety of ways, and you create a different kind of story. I love this analogy of it may seem simple and intuitive and like, oh, let me go be a Hollywood writer. But it's from that tiny kernel that there's this explosion of artistic possibility. Endless permutations. Yeah, just like, like music, right? Eight octaves, but look how, I mean, there's new good music being made all the time. After thousands and thousands or millions of generations of attempts, the heat map of all action is basically reduced to this structure. Right. It's almost like a heat map of the most excellent action patterns in response to reality. Yeah, you're, you're observing different heroic attempts across history and you're abstracting out the common principles. From those abstractions, you abstract again and you get towards this 
point, right, which is the archetypal story. And then the archetypal story informs future action. We use these stories like they're windows or mirrors maybe. I'm not sure if we're looking into ourselves or out into the universe, but there's definitely a looping effect. So whatever it is we experience, we have to express in language that is just not up to the occasion. That's it. It's That's inadequate. what poetry is for. Poetry is a language that uh, has to be penetrated. It, it, it doesn't shut you off. It, it opens. It, it's the rhythm. The precise choice of words that will have implications and suggestions that go past the word is uh, what has to happen. And then you get what Joyce calls the radiance, the epiphany. The epiphany is the showing through of the uh, essence, what the, the Aquinas calls the quiditas, the whatness. The whatness is the Brahman. Somehow the circle suggests immediately a completed totality, whether in time or in space. No beginning, no end. Well, round and round and round. Within the circle is one thing. It is encircled, it's enframed. That would be the spatial aspect. But the temporal aspect of the circle is you leave, go somewhere, and come back, the Alpha and Omega. God is the Alpha and Omega, the source and the end. These bits of information from ancient times, which have to do with the themes that have supported man's life, built civilizations, informed religions over the millennia, have to do with deep inner problems, inner mysteries, inner thresholds of passage. And if you don't know what the guide signs are along the way, you have to work it out yourself. But once this catches you, there is always such a feeling from one or another of these traditions of information of a deep, rich, life-vivifying sort that you, you want to give it up.